This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Las Vegas 1968. Writing Dramatic Conflict. Pod Thai Politics. And Saving a President and His Assassin. where we talk about murder. Right, murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Murder of Crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. It's time once again for Among My Many Hats, and that is the segment in which the covert self-promotion of the rest of this podcast becomes the overt self-promotion of one or the other of us talking about a new or upcoming project. And in this case, that project is once again an installment of Ken Writes About Stuff. That's the series of bite-sized PDF products that Ken produces for Pelgrane Press, now available on the new spiffy, shiny, beautiful Pelgrane Press store. And in this case, it's particularly Las Vegas 68, which is a uh, gumshoe setting supplement for a variety of different games that you can port it into, whether that's uh, the upcoming Fall of Delta Green, or you can use it for Esoterrorists or Mutant City Blues. Uh, but it's mostly a take on Las Vegas at its grooviest. So, Ken, uh, why don't you start off by telling us why you picked 1968 as the most Vegasy of all years? Well, the, the gods prevent you from picking any year that's maximum Vegas because, interestingly, you can't have both uh, Howard Hughes and Anthony Spilotro at the same time, and you can't have Bugsy Siegel and Howard Hughes at the same time. So you either have to go for sort of peak Hughes or peak mob uh, at Vegas. But given that, of course, the fall of Delta Green is coming up, you it needs to be in the 60s. And again, because sort of your, your classic uh, Vegas... 
era in, in the sense that that's the time in which it, it sort of uh, throws itself into the consciousness of America uh, begins in the 60s, uh, the, a decade in which the population of the city uh, skyrockets from, you know, about 50,000 to close to 150,000. The casinos that we know begin to get built. We get the uh, Desert Inn. We get the Stardust. Uh, we get a lot of uh, sort of the, the the signature casinos come along in the late 50s, early 60s. Uh, the last one to open in 1968 is the Circus Circus, which, of course, moves us into the wonderful um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson Vegas, 1971, which is still close enough for government work. And the... Uh, the famous Mint uh, 400, which is, again, the thing that Hunter Thompson comes to Vegas to uh, broadcast and is also plays parts in a lot of Vegas uh, uh, movies and, and consciousness of the time begins in right. 1967. And the Mint 500 is what? For the the Mint 400 is, a, is an off-road rally. It is a, a, a uh, off-road rally that, that runs um, uh, 400 miles from the uh, front of the Mint downtown all the way to the Sahara Hotel in Lake Tahoe. So it's uh, it's quite an e- experience. And again, uh, off-road rallies through the desert make a, a, a possible uh, story hook. Very interesting and, and, and fun to, to contemplate driving across the Mojave. And then something, of course, goes wrong. And here you are out in the desert with nothing but a, but a stripped-down dune buggy between you and, you know, aliens or monsters or whatever it happens to be. Now, uh, there are all sorts of different ways to get in trouble into con- in contemporary Vegas, and uh, even more ways to get into trouble in uh, Vegas in 1968. And uh, obviously, uh, we've alluded to already, the number one way to get into trouble in Las Vegas is to step on the toes of the mob. So what are mob politics looking like in uh, in this era? Uh 68 is sort of the uh last the last era of the golden goose. The, it's still laying eggs and Anthony Spilotro has not come out from Chicago to kill it. Uh the mob at this and time And explain who Anthony Spilotro is. Anthony Spilotro is. is if you've seen the movie uh Casino, he is uh Joe Pesci. He's the guy who comes out and ruins everything for everybody. Um, and, uh, a great excitement. When you send a psychopath out to run things. Yes. <laughs> Weird how that happened. Yeah. What the, the, the role that he played was called the outside man. And the outside man was traditionally sent by the Chicago mob to keep an eye on things and act as sort of a roving troubleshooter, literally in some cases for the mob in Vegas, because the rule in Vegas is, uh, Vegas is an open town and any mob that wants to can operate in Las Vegas, but you've got to operate under the constraints that the mob has set down. You can't sell drugs. You can't hit anyone in Las Vegas because they want to keep crime down so that people will come out to Las Vegas and can't scare the tourists, can't scare the tourists, cannot annoy the locals. That's the golden rule of Las Vegas then as now. And you can't have, obviously, a mob war between other mobsters in Vegas because everyone's supposed to cooperate. And so each casino is funded by generally the Teamsters Union, uh, which is, of course, mobbed up, and then by a number of mobs that would put in money and that they would get points off of the skim. And the skim is when you just take money out of the casino before it's ever even reported, much less taxed. So there's... You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars washing around on the floor of a casino. You take 10% off the top, uh, and that's, you know, $10,000 a day. That adds up. By the time that the, uh, in, in 1968, the, the mob is making probably a million dollars a day or more off of Las Vegas. And in 1968, that's real money, like I need to tell you. So the, uh, each mob has an inside man who's the guy who works for them inside the casino to make sure that their skim is 
accounted for honestly. Usually the inside <laughs> yeah. man. Make, make sure that graft is yes. honestly fairly conducted. Uh, honestly conducted. And the inside man usually works through casino professionals who are all run by Meyer Lansky. And Meyer Lansky, of course, the great Jewish mobster who ran all the casinos in Havana until uh, Castro threw them out in 62. And so his, uh, 61, 62. And so his core of casino professionals moved to Las Vegas. And again, that's one of the reasons you want to set in the 60s, not the 50s, because that's when the Lansky men show up and sort of take things to the next level. So Lansky is usually present. There's a Cleveland uh, guy named Mo Dalitz who is, or Mo Dalitz, who is a sort of a fixer, and he runs the stuff that Lansky doesn't run. And then each casino has all of its inside men, but because Bugsy Siegel was taken out probably by order of Chicago, Chicago claims. He went over budget. <laughs> yes, he did. Um, <laughs> what he got at the, at the very beginning, um, uh, he, he, he got taken out probably again by the order of Chicago. So Chicago claims Vegas as sort of globally its turf. And that's why the outside man is always a Chicago guy. And so the Chicago outfit sort of runs it on the top. Meyer Lansky runs it on the bottom and all of the other mobs get points on the various casinos because it exists almost entirely is a giant money laundering and cash cow scheme. And as long as everyone is cool, then everything's going to work. And the thing that messes it up is Tony Spilotro coming out and starting a whole series of gang wars by personally quintupling the murder rate just by himself. He he does that in, in Las Vegas. And then the other thing that sort of uh, throws it off is Howard Hughes. And the question that you ask if you're any kind of uh, Vegas historian or Hughes historian is, does Howard Hughes mean to run the mob out of Vegas as sort of the legend of Hughes is, or is he actually a giant mark that the mob uses to transform money they owe to Jimmy Hoffa to money they owe to a bank that will not, that will not um, possibly testify against them or kill them if uh, something goes wrong. And, uh, and the, the whole Howard Hughes thing is a giant combination of a, uh, of a big store uh, scam and a uh, money laundering scam, basically. And so no one really knows because Howard Hughes was by then certifiable. And so it's hard to say, you know, what his motivation was, his, Second in command, a guy named Robert Mayhew, who's sort of managed the Hughes empire during the period in which Hughes was in Vegas, is connected to a lot of guys. He's friends with a, a, a guy named Johnny Roselli, who was, um, uh, I think, uh, another Chicago capo. So the question uh, is, to what extent are the Mormon banks that are sort of the place where Hughes stores his money? running a clean up the town deal. And to what extent is Johnny Roselli just trying to rotate the cash and milk uh, a guy who walked into town with um, $547 million in cash and uh, turn him into basically a billion dollar mark and clean him out while he's there. Right. Cause there's two ways you can go that one is a mark and two, he arrives there and then starts to see the mob as, Oh, you remind me of bacteria. Yes. You're <laughs> <laughs> I determined to eradicate from my uh, uh, Hughes cave here. Right. And, of course, uh, Hughes has, you know, he, he hated Frank Sinatra, so maybe that's why he hates the mob. He um, uh, has uh, his own sort of guys who want their, to want to get their beaks wet, the, the so-called Mormon mafia. And, 
uh, if and Robert Mayhew is, the FBI. is acting as a, um, uh, as a, uh, as a, as a funnel for those guys, then you want to move the mob out as much as you can so that there's more skim for you. And yes, Mayhew and the Mormons have connections to both the FBI and to the CIA, uh, who both are able to sort of use, um, uh, use Hughes as a go-to source of slush money and is in some cases as a go-to source of information about Las Vegas. Although it's not that uh, the FBI particularly cares about organized crime at this time. It's not uh, the late seventies is when the FBI actually finally moves against uh, the, the mob in Vegas. Yes. Until then it has found uh, many convenient uses for them for the uh, organized crime. Um, so this is this uh, ecosystem of uh, various uh, players. Uh, how do uh, player characters in, let's say, uh, well, Fall of Delta Green, it's probably pretty easy to start uh, plugging in the uh, shadow uh, world of intelligence and Cthulhu into that. And uh, I think we'll hit that briefly because Fall of Delta Green itself is not uh, uh, written yet, right. uh, much less out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but very briefly, uh, how would you uh, do that easy layup? Uh, well, the easiest of easy layups, there is a... Uh, a deniable services team called Intertel that is active in Vegas. It's owned by Resorts International. It works with Meyer Lansky. In 1970, it is the organization that overthrows Mayhew and physically carries the body of Howard Hughes, like you're moving Alexander the Great's coffin in uh, late antiquity, um, or early antiquity in this case, uh, moves Hughes' body from Vegas to the Bahamas and uh, purges Mayhew and his outfit, but Intertel is all former CIA, former FBI, former IRS, former Justice Department. It's like its own little Delta Green. And the argument being that actually it's just doing the bidding of the CIA or the FBI, and that that is who is behind this this palace coup, because Hughes is getting unstable and he's damaging the cash flow and all the other relationships. Right, and he has mysterious money flowing into the Nixon administration. Right. Once you, also, uh, yes. uh, people want to nail that down. Yeah, once you have a um, uh, one group like that, you can either say, that's the Delta Green cover, or you can say, well, there's obviously another group like that. Plus, of course, uh, Vegas is very close to what will be called later Area 51, so you have your uh, nascent uh, majestic group there. You have any number of possible activities by uh, the feds in all of the... Uh, the surrounding air bases and whatnot, which can fill up a Delta Green docket nicely. And of course, you've got uh, Anasazi ruins and uh, towns that got drowned by the building of Lake Mead and all the other sort of weirdness that is sort of Southern Nevada, not so much Las Vegas, but Las Vegas is a convenient place for your NPCs to get drunk or blackmailed or bankrupt so that they have to go to Delta Green or so that Delta Green can put pressure on them to move into whatever uh, cult or problem area of the government that they're actually investigating. Now, there's Two other uh, extant gumshoe games that deal with the world of uh, intelligence, and uh, one of the and in both cases you'd be taking a game tuned for the contemporary era and moving it back to '68. So uh, I think also as no-brainers go, if you're doing Knights Black Agents '68, uh, obviously the guy who's at the top of the penthouse, who's emaciated uh, with the long fingernails and uh, uh, has all of these uh, crazy uh, rules and rituals that he has to observe in order to, uh, in his opinion, remain alive. Well, we know who Howard Hughes has got to be in Night's Black Agent 68, right? Right. And the other great thing about that is that in 1968, there is another casino that gets built right across from the landmark that's got a New Orleans theme. It's built by a mobster named Frank Carroll, who's of the Kansas City mob. 
Um, he prints up chips and everything else. He never gets a casino license. And so it's sitting there empty, a whole casino that just sits there empty until 1992. And that casino is called the DeVille. And of course, that is Count Dracula's alias in Dracula. He goes around as Count DeVille in London. So we have, not only do we have, as you say, one uh, vampire, which is again, something that uh, Hammer uses in Drac- in uh, Satanic Rites of Dracula. They cast uh, Dracula as the reclusive billionaire D.D. Denham, who lives in the penthouse and has never seen and et cetera. And then here we have the DeVille Casino. So we have two possible vampire casinos without any effort whatsoever. Uh, we've got one up in the Desert Inn uh, as Mr. Hughes, and then we have uh, Dracula in town to mess with people. So we have two great vampire opportunities, and that's without even going into, you know, serial killings or anything else. Also for Nice Black Agents, of course, the uh, pilot, the movie that became uh, the pilot for The Night Stalker, the movie The Night Stalker, takes place in Las Vegas, hunting a vampire in 1971, and that is pretty much as close to a bell-bottomed Night's Black Agents game as you can get already, even before you add uh, Burn Spies. And finally, the Ezoterrorist is also in the uh, set in the shadow world to a big degree. And in this case, that posits a whole set of demons who feed on uh, human weakness, on our every squalid impulse. That's food for them. And of course, what happens in Vegas is food for the entities of the outer dark. And so what sorts of uh, more traditional sort of... uh, Agents versus horror scenarios could you uh, weave in Las uh, Vegas 68? Well, the great thing about the Ezoterrorists is that they also operate on um, on not just uh, decadence, but also on the divergence between belief and reality. And when you believe something extravagant, uh, reality sort of shifts in that direction and weakens the veil. And of course, Vegas is a town where everyone has superstitions, right? They all have their obsession with luck. It's got all these sort of crazy neon gods that have been constructed. Everyone is obsessed with, uh, with getting money and, uh, and, and with, and with something other than normality. So Vegas is sort of, it, it feels unnatural. Even if you're not, you know, in an esoteric game, you go out to Las Vegas and suddenly it's, it's sort of a, magical alien city, which is, of course, what it markets itself to be. Uh, you have any number of uh, possibilities uh, in uh, Las Vegas with the sort of uh, things that uh, people know but can't act on. Like, uh, for example, uh, Ted Binion, uh, his son, was going to be kidnapped by a taxi driver named Marvin Shoemate. Uh, Marvin Shoemate is found uh, with a shotgun hole in his chest in the desert, in 1967 and the killing is quote unquote unsolved. So the, the uh, space between saying something is an unsolved killing and everyone knowing who did it means that you have sort of maybe a, a Tulpa of a a Binion or a Tulpa mob killer that goes around and uh, sort of lives in this space where everyone knows something is going on, but no one can say it openly. And that again is a, is a good space to put uh, monsters and whatnot. Uh, Plus there is a cult called the Ekan car movement that was founded in uh, Las Vegas in 1965. So you have uh, great cult opportunities. Um, And of course, John Wayne Gacy, uh, who has got to be a powerful figure in the esoteric cosmos, perhaps uh, given his single-handed connection of clowns with serial killing, which, you know, for whatever else was wrong with clowns, that was not their problem until, (laughs) until Gacy did it. He worked in the Palm Mortuary in Las Vegas in 1962, and then goes back to Chicago to begin his uh, storied career. So 
what's going on in the Paul mortuary? Is there like a seed bed? Is there an esoteric cult? You have all manner of, of fun things. As you go back and forth between Chicago and Vegas, uh, trailing Gacy, you of course are also on the mob trail on that same sort of, uh, uh, money siphon and murder siphon that uh, keeps Las Vegas operating. So there's, I think there's a, a possible sort of, um, esoteric ley line that you could, uh, put up. Uh, that uh, that meets in Vegas and you know maybe follow other horrible crimes to Los Angeles and and right. uh, and, and the human agents of Esoterror try to find uh, unstable uh, uh, systems that are just on the that are stable now but vulnerable to cracking and then crack them because that creates uh, a sense of psychic chaos in the people affected and so uh, you could have a version of the Spilotro story where really it's an Esoterror cell uh, prompting him to make all of those moves that makes everything go crazy and uh, brings down the hammer. And that's uh, their uh, fuel for uh, summoning all manner of uh, different horrors that they hope will make them uh, powerful, which is, uh, uh, as you, if you know the setting, that's, that's really betting against the house. Yes, uh, absolutely. The the other dark always wins. Uh, So I think we've uh, covered a lot of potential different ideas and campaign frames that you can, uh, ring from uh, Vegas in 1968 and I guess it's time to cash in our chips, uh, listen to an exciting commercial message and then commence our next segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the director's handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. (laughs) 
the chutter of IBM Selectric Keys, the glug, glug, glug of bourbon into a glass and the glug, glug, glug of bourbon into a writer. Tell us we are entering the storied, if somewhat interestingly phrased precincts of the how to write good story precinct story, good writing story. We'll, we'll catch that in revision phase. <laughs> yes, will we? <laughs> Will we really? We'll go back and redline that? Yeah. Okay. Here, anyway, we are talking about uh drama and what makes a dramatic scene. And we're talking sort of as what are we talking about? Uh Selling past the close or closing past the sale. It's one of those. But we're going into the world of petitioning and granting that has been covered in Hamlet's hit points and has been covered in drama system. And now we're talking about how to specifically talk about the tactics of petitioners and grant granters in dramatic scenes in fiction. Am I right, Robin? Right. Uh, so this is, we're talking about how to build scenes where uh, let's for simplicity's sake, say that there are uh, two characters in dramatic conflict with one another. And uh, this is often a, a flaw that you see in a lot of fantasy and science fiction writing in which there will be long stretches of dialogue that kind of lack snap and suspense because they don't really have a conflict to them. And so, for example, uh, a long scene of exposition where you need information exchange, first of all, consider whether you want to present that through dialogue at all, if you may want to just do it through direct narration uh, or internal monologue even. But whatever your scene is, when two people engage with one another, there are ways to sharpen that scene up by uh, thinking about who those people are, what they want, and how they're trying to get it. And so to review, uh, if you haven't heard previous episodes on this, a petitioner is the character who enters the scene wanting something from the other character who chooses to either grant that petition, ergo they are the grantor, or to rebuff the, uh, the petitioner. And often you'll have a structure over time where the initial, there's an initial scene where the petitioner is rebuffed, the situation then changes, and then later on that scene is recapitulated in reverse, and the uh, grantor then grants that petition. Now, within that scene, uh, characters use different tactics in order to get what they want from the uh, from the grantor. And so, if you're the the petitioner, you uh, there, there's you have a need for something from them, and that something can be. Uh, information, but it probably has some sort of emotional valence. That's why we're interested. That's why we have a sense of suspense over whether they're going to get what they want or not, because we either identify with the petitioner and want them to get what they're asking for, or we identify against the petitioner and want the uh, grantor to rebuff them. So those are the motivations for each, and you have to make sure when you're, first of all, if you're going to have a dramatic conflict, that each of those characters, if they, if the one character is going to uh, either uh, resist the other and then eventually give in, or is going to resist them entirely all the way through, that both of those characters have a strong reason that makes sense for them to do that. And there's another strain of uh, weak writing where uh, the grantor character just sort of steps out of character and escalates wildly in a way that doesn't really make sense because the writer knows they want conflict there, but they can't actually succeed in in jamming that conflict out of them. And so uh, this is something I'm, I'm going back and watching the first season of Arrow now, and I'm seeing a lot of 
scenes where the characters kind of really unreasonably escalate their demands and sort of undercut the sympathy or consistency of that character because of the need for a conflict that doesn't quite really make sense in that thing. So the first thing... And, and is, specifically a sort of uh, very emotionally fraught CW-style conflict. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the sort of emotional whipsawing of, uh, characters, uh, and the CW is as good a whipping boy as any. The emotional whipsawing of these characters, uh, creates that sort of very high tension, um, soap opera feel that is also common in a lot of other writing that exists to feed pretty much entirely the emotions over other aspects of the reader. And that's uh, true in soap operas. It's true in a lot of fanfic. It's true in a lot of sort of uh, military uh, uh, science fiction or political uh, fiction that if you, the goal is to sort of uh, create the emotional tie and then you'll follow them through the roller coaster and that whipsaw then weirdly tightens your emotional grip on the character because you've been through so much with them as opposed to actually giving the character any sort of off off page or off screen reality. So I guess it works for the audience, but it doesn't really work for the piece. Is that your argument? Um, well, I think it, it works in the moment, but over time it becomes problematic in that right. the character becomes in, in unsympathetic because they escalate emotionally uh, all the way up the, the ladder and make everything a giant crisis. And so uh, you begin to see them as manipulative or unreasonable. Um, another sign that you are, uh, sort of trying to force a conflict that doesn't really exist organically as if the conflict is based on a misunderstanding that the audience knows is eventually going to be resolved. Um, and so if it's just uh, some sort of uh, dumb, contrived lack of information that is the basis of the, the conflict, you haven't really dug into these characters and found a real reason for them to be at odds with one another. Um, but let's say that you have found strong organic reasons for these characters. One character wants something, the other character is reluctant or entirely resistant to give it to them. Then there's the question of tactics, of how, what is the approach that the petitioner uses to argue why they should get the thing that they want? And you can, and that's another sign of weak writing, is if one character always uh, adopts a tactic that is doomed to fail. So, for example, if the character yearns for the respect of his domineering mother and uh, he comes in and, uh, you know, really has no case for it and seems whiny or petulant and he's supposed to be the uh, identification figure, you are not surprised by the fact that the grantor uh, resists or rebuffs the petition. So you want to make their arguments uh, as good as possible, and you want to make both characters have really strong uh, reasons for uh, doing what they're doing, and to pick really strong tactics to do that. So, uh, for example, the character comes on from a position of strength and has a really good case to make for getting the respect of his mother, uh, then you have to like, sort of switch uh, sides and come up with, well, here's Here's the, what that uh, other character, here's what their riposte would be. And so you are basically coming up with a, a kind of a verbal duel where it's, you know, I call on our shared history together. Okay, in that case, I remind you of this time when you disappointed me. And I call on your sense of fairness, and I respond to that by saying, well, the world isn't fair. And so the scene becomes 
in order to be interesting over time, the characters need to vary their tactics and do so kind of quickly. Otherwise, they're just repeating themselves. In real-life arguments that we have with our loved ones, we repeat ourselves endlessly because uh, it is the nature of emotional conflict that you uh, kind of make your case, and uh, even if you've settled things, you can't leave it alone because you're both still upset. In the world of drama, you want to pare down all of the repetition and the reuse of uh, uh, tactics and come up with like two or three different tactics that uh, the petitioner will use and two or three different tactics and then the grantor will respond to them with and then uh, move on. And in some forms, and that's more uh, uh, stage writing, there will quite often be very long uh, dramatic scenes that will go on for five, ten minutes between uh, two characters. And in those cases, you may find them going through uh, 12, uh, 24 different tactics going back and forth. Whereas in TV writing, which tends to uh, cut between characters very quickly, you might have a very simple scene where the petitioner employs one tactic, the uh, grantor uh, responds with another tactic, and then maybe there's another one, and then they cut away, and then they come back later, and that scene continues often in reversed form. And so when you're, as you're reviewing a scene that you've written, perhaps, uh, you know, just letting the dialogue flow and what those characters who you vividly imagine would really say, when you review that, you want to tighten it up so that anything that repeats a tactic that's already been used or goes on for just too long with any one single tactic. Like if you've got, you know, a 300-word uh, speech that essentially is just appealing to uh, one uh, desire or instinct on the part of the grantor, you want to uh, cut that down so that you're switching between tactics. And so in a, an emotional scene of people basically talking to one another, perhaps in a heated fashion, that's the sort of same back and forth that you would get in a physical fight scene where people are, are trading blows, but here they're, they're trading words, and you, uh, in a way, are creating your verbal fight choreography by being aware of this scene structure and keeping it as tight and sharp and with as many different beats in it as you can. So the trick then is to, is to vary things, keep things tight, uh, are there ways to change it up? Are there specific tactics that, uh, because obviously if you're describing a sword fight and it's always ended with a lunge over the blade, then the sword fights become dull. Are there specific tactics that you can see that might be in the, um, uh, in the repertoire of the writer that they can offer uh, either the petitioner or the grantor to sort of allow things to change up structurally, if, if not emotionally or uh, in terms of the grounds on which they appeal or, or whatever else? If you have uh, characters who are sufficiently dimensioned, who have more than one thing about them, uh, the uh, just as in real life, if you, there's someone who's your loved one or it's, uh, someone you know really well or maybe even an antagonist, but you know a bunch of different buttons that they have that can be uh, pushed or appealed to. And uh, often uh, the way to structure that is the uh, petitioner will go in with the one with the least possible emotional charge and effort and blowback. And so, uh, you know, the uh, uh, flattery or appealing to shared experience or things that try and make the grantor feel good are the ones that will generally uh, start out with. And then, uh, as the uh, petitioner is rebuffed, generally they will become uh, more defensive 
or they will, uh, so either the, uh, often the grantor can kind of turn things around on the petitioner and reverse the scene by then asking for something in return that the petitioner doesn't want, or you just have an escalation where uh, things just start to get uh, more hurtful and more emotionally risky for the, the relationship. And so uh, you can start with the uh, palette of sort of positive approaches and then uh, to uh, more negative approaches, whether, and that's like guilt or threats. or uh, So you can kind of make a list of uh, the different ways that you get things out of people in your real life or you see other people doing. And so uh, one thing to do is look at a really great uh, uh, stage play. And uh, uh, Mamet is very stylized. It's hard to get there. But, uh, for example, uh, the play Hurly Burly by David Rabe is a really great example of that because it has big, long, extended scenes with a lot of different characters, a lot of different points of view. And you can... Uh, kind of uh, sit there if you get a, a DVD and, and uh, sit there with the pause button and just watch how many different times the characters uh, switch their ways of trying to uh, wheedle, cajole, flatter, complain uh, their, uh, and get their unmet needs met by the equally broken people around them. And so a, a real, uh, just as you uh, learn to write by reading and uh, getting a sense of people's uh, prose style or dialogue, you can also, uh, with a little bit more concentration, stop and analyze how a really well-constructed uh, dramatic scene works. Uh, if you want to stay in nerdy territory, episodes of Game of Thrones actually have pretty sharp uh, petitioner-granter structures, and uh, there are uh, people whose tactics never work and always fail, like Cersei in the most recent season, or also Sons of Anarchy, uh, also not quite as nerdy a show, but um, that show is really well written in terms of the way that the characters who are all sort of seasoned operators and manipulators, as well as uh, being essentially family members or literally family members with each other, and you see that the grantor quite frequently cuts the scene to the chase. The uh, petitioner will come in with the uh, the nice tactic, and then the other, uh, the grantor will say, what do you really want? And they will escalate the scene and make it more of a negotiation. And so you can analyze those scenes and, and look at all the, make a list of all the different uh, tactics if you are uh, stumped as to which ones to employ. All right. So when you've got a uh, grantor who cuts to the chase, that I think acts as an example of uh, a, a what I want to what I want to say it, it makes things clear for the reader or viewer in that in this case uh, it sort of lays out the stakes it gives you a strong sense of um uh, what's going on I mean when a character says cut to the chase tell me what's really going on what they're also saying is hey explain it for the audience who may have you know just been watching for the motorcycles is there a because if every petitioner in a ecosystem is abrupt and demands things overtly, you're probably dealing with, um, something, uh, like a psychopathic motorcycle. <laughs> like a psycho yeah. Well, yeah. It doesn't like, work in every circumstance, yeah. right? If you're doing a, uh, a sort of an elegant comedy of manners in a world where no one is ever supposed to come to the point, uh, you've, uh, got to have the characters do that in a different way. Right. So there, there's still a way of going, well, cut to the chase. What do you really want? But it might be, sort of a witty offhand deflecting kind of remark that causes it to escalate. So the manners that are in play in the milieu are a big part of how you're portraying the world that you're setting out. So that if you're doing a uh, sort of a, a Jane Austen uh, style uh, uh, comedy slash drama of manners, uh, 
the emotional stakes are just as high as they are in Sons of Anarchy, um, but the ways that they, uh, you know, they may never say anything out loud, but the a verbal slash in that world where the, you know, the stakes are, you know, if you do it wrong, you can be disgraced and exiled forever are just as acute. And so, uh, it, but that's a great way of, of looking at it is that tactics are the manners, are the etiquette, are, are the emotional vocabulary that the uh, characters overlay onto the standard petitioner-grantor structure, which works just the same in Sense and Sensibility as it does in Sons of Anarchy. And one of the things about Jane Austen, I was going to actually go to Jane Austen if you hadn't gone to Jane Austen, is as one does, as one does, is that uh, in addition to being corking good reads, um, Jane Austen does the at that time pretty radical approach of giving you a character whose internal narration in her dialogue with the reader acts as a way for the reader to understand a lot of that subtext that the overt dialogue doesn't necessarily make clear. And so in a lot of cases, when you see a filmed or televised Pride and Prejudice, you can see the the repartee and the banter and the discussion, but because you don't have the internal monologue of Liza Bennett always giving you the sort of here's what no one could actually say, but you and I, dear reader, are such good friends that I will say it, element that sort of gives you that sec that third or often fourth dimension, Jane Austen being Jane Austen. Yeah, it has to be really brilliantly acted and uh, also edited for uh, the, you sort of get the subliminal sense of the subtext in a really great Jane Austen adaptation, and that's why one that uh, falls flat doesn't, because they're not giving you uh, those emotional cues that explain how this now... Uh, non-existent uh, uh, etiquette uh, really worked. So, in, so in uh, so in Austin's case, uh, to continue my fencing metaphor, uh, such as it was, uh, you have Jane Austen's uh, viewpoint character acts as the play-by-play commentator of the fencing match, or or at least the color commentator, the the guy who's brought in to say, well, against a left-handed batter, what you got to have here is a left-handed pitcher or that kind of thing. And so, which has got nothing to do with fencing. I don't know why I started with fencing. <laughs> metaphor drift. <laughs> metaphor metaphor drift. drift. Get him, get him. He's drifted his metaphor. Uh, but the, but that sort of ability to talk about the tactics without talking about the tactics while also talking about the tactics is one of the advantages I think that prose fiction has over film because you can be reading it on multiple levels, which is a lot harder as you, as you point out to get uh, between acting, directing and editing, all of those have to work and they have to work really well for you to get anything like the kind of interior interiority that you get out of a novel. Right. And so if you're writing prose and you're working in a genre field, you can create an imaginary etiquette to go with your imaginary society. So you could have a, uh, you could use that Jane Austen technique in a scene where the uh, hero encounters dwarves and knows enough about dwarf society uh, not to offend them, and the uh, the straight to the reader narration can explain why it is that the uh, hero can't just come out and ask the dwarf king uh, to loan him a warrior, but why he must rather uh, do this. And uh, he's noticed that the the dwarf king stiffens, and that indicates that he may have. Uh, offended their their law of threes and uh, you can make that a part of the tapestry of what you're reading and so you can make up uh, for an imagined culture you can make up an imagined set of tactics that work or don't work through the course of a scene yeah and i think we have a real opportunity to talk about how to 
describe etiquette and manners and culture in fiction that is probably yet a different chapter of the how to write good chapter book. <laughs> it's not a novel. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a meta novel, right? It's, a, it's, yes, it's a metaphor drift novel. It's a metaphor drift novel. Uh, we're, we're building our own genre of novel. So alert fancy New York, uh, literary agents. Here we are doing your work for you. But like I say, once, uh, we have opened up the, uh, the, the, the pristine page to a whole new chapter, it is perhaps time to go away from the typewriter and toward the bourbon and into another hut. when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it. Well, actually, it's a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk that RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagaln. Ask for Askfagaln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The sizzling of the oil, the clump of the delicious meats tossed on top of the thing you were sizzling in the oil and the shout of cheerful food sellers from around the canal strewn city tell us that we have entered a deliciously tamarind scented corner of the food hut and here in the food hut we're going to talk about one of the great successes in street food something that jumped from pretty much nothing to national and then global uh, acceptance in less than a century we're talking of course about the delicious Pod Thai, and Pod Thai has an origin that one might not expect it to have had. Uh, Robin, do you want to take us through uh, good things about Pod Thai, or do we want to jump right into history? Let's uh, jump right into history, because I uh, wanted to uh, take this example, which was uh, laid out in a uh, blog post on Priceonomics.com, and we'll link to that in the show notes, that explains the way that uh, Pod Thai is not just a delicious food, but was a consciously introduced a political move that, uh, uh, as part of a suite of other historical changes, was meant to create a sense of national unity. And so once we cover uh, the details of that, perhaps we can move on to uh, other uh, imagined or even real historical cases of the politics of food. But the politics of Pantai basically 
are that in 1938, uh, the prime minister of uh, what had just been renamed Thailand or just or was about to be renamed Thailand by him, a guy named Plake Phibun Songkram, uh, in uh, 38, he had risen to the prime ministership after being part of a coup that uh, knocked out the royal family of, uh, of Siam. And he set about the problem, uh, a couple of problems, uh, and uh, Pad Thai was his solution to a number of uh, difficulties that he saw for his country. Much as uh, it is for us today. Yes. Uh, the difficulty Pad Thai solves for me is that I'm hungry. The difficulty that it solved for him was uh, essentially twofold. One, uh, he uh, had a nation that was a bunch of regions that he wanted to uh, unite and have them all identify the same way. And secondly, he was concerned about imperialism and uh, being colonized, uh, which Siam had not yet uh, been, and he didn't want it to be. And so he wanted to uh, project a strong sense of not just a culture, but a modern culture, thereby removing the excuse that the colonial powers would use of going in and civilizing and helping people. He wanted to project the idea that uh, we're perfectly fine here. Uh, we wear nice hats the same way you do, nice Western hats, and uh, we don't need to be uh, conquered. Now, I'm not sure if that would have actually stopped anyone. What, what did stop people from colonizing Siam? Uh, there's a couple of things. First of all, the, the fact that Siam, uh, in the 18th and 19th century was an expansionistic military power. Going in and picking on Siam was not the same thing as going in and picking on the various Burmese states or Southeast Asia in Indochina, where there was a bunch of small states that were all squabbling with each other. And so you could always have, you know, the French could come in and say, oh, Cochin, Cochin China, are you mad at Anam? We're going to help you out against those bastards in Anam. And Anam, are you mad at Cochin China? We're going to help you out against those bastards in Cochin China. And then suddenly the French are in charge of the militaries of both powers. And then it's super easy to turn them into a French protectorate and then a French colony. The British are doing basically the same thing in Burma. So as they're moving towards Siam, they are coming up against something that uh, a country that in the 17th century, so fairly recently, had begun a uh, campaign of taking out the other weak powers, similarly, Southeast Asia and Burma, on its other sides. And so they were driving south into Malaya. They were taking huge pieces of um, of territory away from the Khmer uh, states in uh, Cambodia. And so they were their own expansionistic empire. This was not beating up on uh, some tiny little uh, country. This was beating up on a big uh, expansionist power like Ethiopia was in Africa, like Japan was in Asia, like Turkey was. And again, those countries got carved away at by the various uh, imperial states, but they couldn't actually bust them up. There's very few large, uh, er modern in the sense of having been founded and, and uh, expanded in the early uh, modern era countries, with the exception of India, that any of the imperial powers were able to take out wholesale. So, Thailand had a lot of give in it. The, the French and British both carved away at its sort of protectorates on either side, and they both established sort of um, uh, spheres of influence or claimed spheres of influence in Thailand, but they never quite, no one really wanted to 
test the case of how easy is it to conquer these guys. Thailand in the 17th century was where samurai angry at the Japanese shoguns would go to get jobs killing people. So Thailand was a, was a happening place even way back when. I mean, hat or no hat, they, they were a, they were a place and a half, uh, going back to the 17th century. So in 38, uh, Phoebe Songkram wants to make sure it's still a place and uh, mm-hmm. not a protectorate or a colony. And, uh, among the things that he does is he's, uh, and this is a time uh, when all around uh, the world, uh, people are responding to the chaos of the first part of the century by saying, let's all get together and be unified and have uniforms and, and conform to an ideal. And that's why there's a big uh, pull toward uh, fascism and communism, uh, not just in the, in the Far East, but around the world. And uh, the version of that here is that he issues 12 cultural mandates, and some of them are about etiquette. Some of them, as I indicated, are about uh, affecting Western clothing. And uh, one of them is your new national dish is going to be pad thai. Now, pad thai already exists at this time as a street food, but not in any one particular form and is not the dominant uh, dish of the most of the country. Most of the country has a more sort of primitive, basic kind of a, a rice dish. And the PM decides, uh, first of all, the the, I want a dish that is more nutritious, uh, that is uh, cleaner, less chance of giving you food poisoning. So you have to prepare it this particular way in this particular cleaner uh, set of pans, but also something that creates a broader sense of identity. We all eat pad thai. That's why we have thai in the name. And so there's two different stories of how the, the version, the canonical pad thai uh, came to be. One of those is that there was a contest for the best pad thai, and the second version is that they just used their own family recipe that they made themselves and made everyone else uh, eat that. And it was delicious enough that it worked. So uh, are, there, uh, are there more uh, details that you want to add to the story before we broaden this out a bit? Um, I, I think that uh, one of the fun things about Pod Thai is that although they they already had sort of fried noodles... It really was just like his family recipe. It wasn't like he went and he figured out what the people were eating. It was like, well, my grandma makes this and this is awesome and everyone should have pod thai. Uh, and, and the fact that it sort of is Chinese noodles with Thai spices, uh, pulls together the Chinese uh, minority with the Thai majority into a single culture, which is, uh, I think kind of a nicer thing than saying, nope, we're only going to have Thai food, uh, from the uplands and everyone in Bangkok can just, uh, um, uh, put up or shut up. I, I like the, I like the sort of deliberately syncretic creation of the food. If more quasi, uh, authoritarian, uh, leaders, uh, made it a big point to share their family recipe and made, spend a bunch of their time doing that instead of like killing people and rounding them up, the world might be a better place. Hitler was a vegetarian. What can you do? Yeah. Nothing. It's like, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, mom's kale recipe was not going to do it in Germany. I'll tell you what. So this, uh, brings up sort of the, uh, the broader idea that if you're creating a culture, uh, you can have, uh, invent a culture that has been invented by somebody else. That is that the sense of, uh, unity, uh, that everyone subscribes to even right down to the details of every day living, like the foods that they eat can be something that only came about uh, 80 years ago, and it didn't take that long uh, to uh, for, for Pad Thai to become the thing. And uh, interestingly, then, as Thai food uh, spread throughout the Western world starting in the 1980s, that there was sort of a deregionalization because in each uh, city, there was the one person who showed up and started making Thai food. Uh, here in Toronto was someone named Wandi Young. And 
they uh, usually wound up their adaptation of their national cuisine, which was somewhat standardized to what they thought local people would eat, is very, very different from place to place. So speaking of Germany, if you go and order a green uh, chicken curry at a Thai restaurant in Germany, you're going to get something that in no way resembles a green uh, chicken curry that you would order in Toronto. Uh, both are very delicious. Uh, one of them is much more breaded and has a very uh, <laughs> uh, suspiciously familiar looking uh, gr- green sauce on it. I wonder which which one that is. I wonder which one we're talking about. <laughs> yes. um, and uh, it would be a, a sort of, a, I think, an interesting quest for a, a food writer, maybe even preferably a Thai one, to go all around the world uh, investigating the different histories of Thai food in different places in just the you know, basically two generations since it spread all around uh, the Western world. Yeah, there's um, a number of uh, books about Mexican food that take uh, the taco as uh, determinative, which is, of course, again, a, a fairly recent creation. Tacos began as as lunch food for the miners in northern Mexico. And then because northern Mexico happened to be next to America, tacos are what America first sort of glommed onto as Mexican food. And then America acts as the megaphone to bring tacos all around the world as well. And so you have a, a similar sort of a, a lucky shot with pod Thai. Of course, it's designed to be the national food. So everyone who's a cook in Thailand, they may know all their own recipes, but they also know pod Thai because, you know, their, um, uh, their hat wearing wives would have made them learn it. And so as you define an imagined culture, one of the things that you can detail is the extent to which, uh, notions of food are centralized or localized so that, uh, knowing that about Thailand tells you a lot about that society and about their history, and as it did here, moved us back into the, the 17th century. Uh, in uh, Italy, by contrast, every little village has its own different way that everybody's grandma makes something, and everybody, even the next village, you know, uh, 50 kilometers down the way, does it totally wrong. <laughs> and that, I think, tells you something about the history of political unity or <laughs> not in in Italy as well. And so that's something else that you can define about your alien world or your imagined fantasy culture is how do people relate to each other using their food? And does their food indicate that there's a, a sort of a sense of uh, shared history or a, a factionalism of small differences where the, uh, you know, a slight variation in the spice that goes into your fish sauce means that you're clearly you're from this village and that if you uh, uh, taste somebody else's fish sauce, it's wrong and you, you can barely stand to pretend that it's any good and a fight may break out at any time. Uh, another uh, variation that you can introduce into your uh, imagined cuisine is not just a question of, you know, flavor, but the question of uh, ingredient. Uh, and this is an example of how to either separate your cuisine from the other cuisines so that, for example, kosher or halal food doesn't have pork in it. So that allows you to separate out the Jewish or Muslim food. But if you are saying uh, elves won't eat any fruit that, that uh, grows on a tree because trees are too sacred, so they only eat ground nuts instead of tree nuts. They only eat um, uh, uh, gourds and, and squash instead of apples. And so that can allow you to re- highlight some other part of the culture in yet another way. And that allows the elves to maintain a, a separateness uh, from the, the stupid apple eating uh, humans. They're, they're like horses. They eat apples, those humans. And um, uh, it allows you to tell 
the reader without telling the reader what's another important, what's an important core belief of this culture. And you can do it with elves or you can do it with, uh, some planet or other that, um, uh, that, that, that won't eat, uh, a guinea pig because, uh, they all had to eat guinea pig in the pioneer days and to eat guinea pig makes you look poor, uh, now, now that they can actually afford to, to raise their own banthas or something. Right. There's, there's class politics of food, as you indicate, that certain foods are associated with certain classes. And of course, um, often historically, the, uh, cuisines that we most exalt today are the ones that evolved from taking the worst ingredients and trying to make them edible. And that's where French, you know, uh, high French cuisine comes from trying to make uh, crappy peasant ingredients uh, consumable. Um, And you mentioned with the uh, discussion of the stupid apple-eating humans that that also can be a measure in your world of how uh, integrated or at odds uh, different subcultures are because uh, when cultures come into conflict with one another, the minority culture is often uh, are given slurs that are associated with their favorite foods. Right. Uh, which Krauts, is, for example. Yeah, yeah which is just a, uh, one of the horrible, uh, most vicious things you could do is take uh, something as uh, uh, shareable and wonderful and nurturing as food and, and use it as a weapon against people, uh, a verbal weapon. And uh, But then as the cultures become more integrated, it doesn't make sense anymore if the elves start eating apples and decide to realize that they're delicious and they incorporate that, that, them into like their the own cuisine. the half are all eating apples. Yeah, that, yeah. and so that, in, you know, that no longer makes sense to, you know, you stupid apple eater as you dig into your delicious apple crumble. Mm-hmm. And so those terms of abuse start to fall away as those cultures become more integrated. Yeah, as you, uh, when you read uh, Napoleonic uh, fiction where they're all uh, calling out the French for being garlic eaters. And it's like, isn't everyone a garlic eater? What, what happened with that? That's so strange. Uh, and of course the other, uh, you can use it as a signifier that may or may not be cruel. For example, all of the, the British travelers in uh, Europe were called, uh, my Lord roast beef, uh, by the, by the, uh, uh, sort of writers at the time, because whatever else was, was going on, the English all wanted roast beef. So it's not so much making fun of you. Ha ha. How dare you eat roast beef? It's I think like, in France it is. Actually. It is really. Yeah. yeah roast um, beef is, uh, it's, it's the converse of frog. Actually. Yes. Right. Except that roast beef, uh, they, they have, they, they do roast beef in, in France. They've roasted beef in France since medieval times. I'm not well, sure. That's, that's the perverse thing, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, I think the suggestion is if you, you only eat roast beef, that's, right, that's yeah. the problem with you, right? And also it implies that you're rich because you can uh, show up and just demand roast beef anytime instead of waiting for a feast day, like a proper person. Right. And, and I guess I should just before we head out of the segment indicate that, uh, food is also a point of cultures coming together in that, you know, once you start to, uh, you know, your first sort of ignorant uh, contact with the culture may be through its food, but that's not nothing. And that uh, uh, even, uh, you know, the majority culture may only associate a, a, a subculture, an immigrant culture with its food for a while. But the act of eating someone else's food or being served food by them is uh, you know, despite all of our desire to separate ourselves from others and to fracture into little subgroups, uh, the joy of food is something that quite often overcomes that. And the, the uh, phenomenon of a uh, culture moving to a place, uh, as happened in uh, the 80s with Thai food, and bringing their food as a vanguard of cultural contact is a thing that, again, we see over and over again. And uh, to go back to our example, uh, food that it was already a fusion of two different uh, uh, cultures that were rubbing up against each other is now 
uh, become a whole bunch of different versions of that food uh, throughout the world. Yes, although you can certainly go too far with that, as the uh, history of Southern cooking demonstrates. It's the history of African Americans taking terrible food, making it awesome, having that food then be claimed by the white people they were cooking for as their own, and very little progress having been made over the centuries, despite everyone eating everyone's food. Barbecue begins as uh, 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 white, poor country food becomes, uh, uh, the black cooks take it over and, uh, and, and make their changes. And then it gets uh, brought back up to the white north, which then ignores barbecue for decades. Uh, it's a, it's a weird and, and strange universe that we live in. So don't count necessarily on the pod tie to create openness. But again, it's important to notice that compared to the rest of Southeast Asia, the rest of the Chinese diaspora, Thailand has had many, many fewer anti-Chinese uh, riots and pogroms than places like Malaysia, or the Philippines, or Indonesia. And a lot of that is because their national food, everyone knows, is made off of Chinese fried noodles. Right. Well, on that note of uh, a slight cultural hope and big hunger, let us move to our final segment after this exciting commercial. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolze frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly. Or Tales from Failed Anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid Zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronoton solos that were once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. That, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated puts Ken in when it wants him to go back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. Now, often on this segment, we look at things that Ken is about to do to the time stream, is considering doing to the time stream, has considered and rejected, but in this case, we're uh, looking at an after-action report for something that Ken has already done. And in fact, it's two interventions in the time stream for the price of one, uh, one of them more explicable than the others. So let's start with that one. Uh, Ken, uh, when uh, James Garfield, future president of the United States of America, at age 16, fell into a canal in pitch darkness and was about to drown, you threw him the rope 
that he used to haul himself back up and led him to conclude that perhaps a career as a canal man was not what he was looking for, and he went back home in the direction of his life changed. Now, James Garfield was, uh, as American presidents go, a pretty admirable guy. So uh, the easy part of this is to explain uh, what his admirable uh, qualities were and uh, why you made sure that he survived that incident at age 16. Well, um, he was admirable, maybe a strong word. He was certainly uh, didn't deserve what happened to him, but there you go. Uh, so few of us do. Um, the, uh, the main reason to save him is that he plays a crucial role in the Civil War. He is the guy who drives uh, the Confederates out of eastern Kentucky for a good long time, uh, thus enabling Kentucky to stay in the Union and prevent uh, the uh, the South from putting a frontier on the Ohio River, which would have been a very uh, tough job to, to, to crack. And then also played another fairly crucial role in the Battle of Shiloh, which not only uh, killed the South's best, uh, general in the West, uh, Albert Sidney Johnston, but it also, um, uh, created the career of Ulysses S. Grant and broke the back of Southern resistance in the West. So Garfield's role in, uh, the battle of Middle Creek in Kentucky, where he was the only battle he personally commanded, but also his unsung role or less sung, I guess, than other people, his role in, uh, the battle of Shiloh is, uh, the reason, the primary reason to save his life in um, uh, 1860, or not 1860, in 18, whatever the hell it was, 1849. Well, the things I, I sort of like about Garfield, well, first of all, just on a, a minor note, uh, he had a policy of uh, when he was, uh, during the period when he was uh, president and wasn't wasn't dying or dead, uh, he had a policy of uh, the Library of Congress would uh, alert him whenever a new book would come in, and he uh, was an avid reader, so he sort of... Uh, a Ken-like president in, uh, in, in that, that way. Uh, sense. Uh, the story of how he gets nominated for president is uh, uh, sort of hilarious and, and beautiful in that he is not a candidate going in. So there were two factions uh, at the Republican convention. There were the stalwarts, who were the pro-patronage uh, faction of the Republican Party, and they were led by a guy named uh, Roscoe Conkling. Uh, and there were the half-breeds, who were in favor of uh, reform. And so there, there are two sort of proxy candidates for each of these two factions, and they went through something like 38 ballots with the results not changing any because the system of dropping out the lower the lower resulting candidates hadn't occurred to anybody yet. So they yeah. just kept voting and voting and voting. And he had given the uh, introductory speech for uh, the half-breed side. And even during his speech, people were crying out, no, not that, how about you? We want to vote for you. And he did not want to be president. And uh, But then on 39, there was this big, uh, uh, essentially uh, emergent wave of support. And all of a sudden, uh, all across the convention hall, people started voting for him. And he stood up as, it, as the wave was coming. And he said, uh, I would like to uh, raise a point of privilege and that I do not want to stand for. No, that is not a point of privilege. Sit down, sir, while we elect you our candidate. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, lore of the reluctant uh, candidate in American politics, but he seemed to be uh, genuinely uh, reluctant and, and an honorable uh, guy. But you seem to be a little skeptical. Well, I mean, part of that is because uh, during the credit mobilier scandal, uh, Garfield did... He, he did accept 
railroad stock or possibly dividends without having bought any stock, which is like even worse in a lot of ways. So he's one of those guys who is very eager to condemn corruption in New York, but a little less eager to keep it completely out, out of his hands. Now that played into my hands quite nicely when I was getting the transcontinental railroad built. Uh, you're welcome. But, uh, it does mean that the sort of the, the notion of Garfield as this selfless, disinterested campaigner against corruption, there, uh, th- there's a little Camelot avant la lettre because of the tragedy of his assassination that gets attached to his, uh, reputation beforehand. I mean, he's, uh, He's supporting uh, William Tecumseh Sherman for president at the, that 1880 convention. And of course, Sherman didn't want to be president and really didn't want to be president. And when it looked like he was going to be president, he said the, 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 uh, the classic, um, uh, if nominated, I will not campaign. If elected, I will not serve, which has been the gold standard for not running for president ever since. <laughs> and so if a president doesn't quote Sherman, a candidate doesn't quote Sherman, then everyone's like, well, you really are going to run for president, which in fairness, they probably are. Right. So, and in that day, promising not to campaign was no big thing because nobody campaigned. You didn't right, campaign yeah. personally. Your surrogates went out into but it. Saying you're not going to serve if you are, you know, William Sherman, William Tecumseh Sherman, the hero of the Civil War, that's a bigger threat. Right. Um now, uh, so I guess this is where we're starting to get into the territory of the uh, A, more difficult, and B, more surprising time intervention. And that's when you saw to it that Charles Gateau survived the collision of the Stonington and the Narragansett. Uh, what was that incident, and uh, how did you manage that? Uh, there are two paddle steamers uh, in Long Island Sound that are basically ferrying people back and forth from the uh, Connecticut shore to... Uh, New York City. And the Narragansett had took take on a bunch of passengers in New York City. It's heading out towards Connecticut. The Stonington is going, I forget if it's going the other way. It it was a long time ago. And uh, they slam into each other in the fog. Uh, The Stonington uh, goes back to port and no one on the Stonington dies. This, I think, is the important point I'm going to make. And the Narragansett uh, has a giant hole in it and catches on fire and about 50 people die. And the reason that uh, Gateau survived the Stonington, I made sure no one on the Stonington died when I ran it into the Narragansett because the goal was to stop the zombie plague from breaking out on board the Narragansett. The Narragansett had, was was full of zombies. Uh, it was a matter of time before they took over the whole ship and then were unleashed on the uh, slumbering communities of suburban Connecticut. And I couldn't see that happen. So yes, I took action in the moment. I ran the Stonington into the Narragansett. Perhaps one or two innocents may have died, but in fairness, they were going to be eaten by zombies anyway. But thanks to my quick action. And I think if you look at the, um, uh, at the records of the time, you will find that no one on board the Narragansett agrees with anyone else's story as to what happens. A clear case of people coming down from their zombie fever um, uh, that uh, my actions were justified. Charles Gouteau was just a megalomaniac. That's why he thought I magically saved his life uh, on the Stonington. And uh, I saved everyone's life on the Stonington because the whole point was to knock out the zombie colony on the Narragansett, not to save Charles Gouteau. Charles Gouteau was a nut. So uh, I guess listeners will want to uh, uh, sense why it is that you are, didn't really particularly want to save Charles Gateau, that his survival was in fact collateral damage. Yeah, right. Um, but the Trump, but the thing is that while Garfield, you know, certainly did not deserve to lay in agony for 80 days after being shot by Guiteau, uh, the other aspect of his, uh, presidency that got cut short by his death was the buildup of the American Navy. He was a navalist president 
way before Teddy Roosevelt was. And if the Navy had been built up in the 1880s, uh, there was, in fact, going to be a war with Great Britain over uh, interests in South America. We barely avoided such a war in, the, in 1892 anyway. And if the Americans had had a uh, large modern Navy in the Caribbean, that would have come to blows. That would have come to shots. And there would have been an invasion of Canada. And I don't like to, um, uh, you know, take credit. But, you know, the fact that Toronto didn't get burned down again, that's all on me. So well, you made sure there were jelly donuts. I did make sure there was uh, uh jelly uh, urban donuts. I made absolutely sure of that. Calgary also would have fallen to the onrushing American hordes and probably buckwheat pancakes would have been there, but not jelly urban donuts. So jelly modern donuts coming right. to Toronto or Calgary. I, I, I cannot take that chance. Uh The other thing that uh the uh assassination of Garfield specifically uh, creates is the modern civil service system in America because everyone's like, well, he was shot by a crazy person who wanted a government job. Let's try to start restricting government jobs to non-crazy people, or at least to people who uh, are not immediately political hack, um, uh, uh, a spoil system uh, job seekers like right. Guiteau was. And and, and Guiteau, uh, you often hear, oh, you know, that Garfield was shot by a frustrated office seeker, but that underestimates the pure bull goose lunacy of Charles Gateau, who yeah. was a complete, uh, completely delusional. Uh, he, uh, spent some time, uh, in the, uh, burned over district. And so yes, there's a he did. connection there. Um, and which, uh, which, uh, sect was that again? Do you remember offhand? He was a uh, part of the Oneida community, the famously, um, uh, the famous sort of commune of communes, uh, and was, uh, a noisist and also a theosophist. He had a lot of talk about, um, well, maybe not so much a theosophist, but it was sort of half theosophy, half Swedenborgianism. There was angels that got into people's lives and moved their history around. He had a really strong um, uh, uh, personal apocalyptic theology that he built up out of noisy and uh, Oneida communism, and he built it up out of uh, Swedenborgian angelology, and he uh, tacked in a little bit of theosophy. He right. was, and, and he heavily plagiarized his, his religious text right, from yes. somebody else. He, he, he wrote a book which basically ripped off noise, but his argument was that noise had, had ruined um, uh, his own uh, career as a promising communard, I guess, whatever your career is when you go to a commune. Right. And uh, that was supposed to be a free love commune where the yes. women were supposed to willingly offer themselves to all members, but they all, they all uh, conspicuously disoffered themselves from the uh, sort of beady-eyed uh, Charles Gateau. And so, so they he, nicknamed him Charles Get Out. Yeah, Charles Get Out. <laughs> and uh, but the whole system was kind of crazy at this point because so imagine, uh, if you will, a period when the president is expected to be so accessible to people that uh, everybody can just wander into the White House. It's an open public building; anybody can come in at any time. And the bulk of the president's day, or the chunk in the mid center, is you're supposed to maintain open office hours for everybody who comes and wants to talk to you. And guess what they want to talk to you about? They want a job. And so this is how Gateau, uh, you know, he met cabinet uh, ministers and he did meet Garfield and he was a famous past. And basically he wrote them saying, I would be ideal for the role of... Uh, Paris consul. Uh, Paris consul. and uh, Or Vienna. He'd take or Vienna. Vienna. And, uh, you know, he met the uh, president's wife and she recalled from him and he recalled that as being warmly embraced by her. So he was... Uh, you know, not just a disappointed office seeker, but a uh, a full blown uh, uh, nut, and uh, and so it's it, a really interesting sort of period. And of course, once the president gets assassinated, it's not even after this 
that the Secret Service really uh, buckles down to its job of uh, being a bodyguard for the president. That that takes yet another assassination. Yeah, and uh, the that assassination is what makes Teddy Roosevelt president. And Teddy Roosevelt, of course, rises to power in national politics as one of the heads, one of the first heads, in fact, of the uh, civil service organization and the or civil service commission, whatever it is. It's the thing where they uh, that they put into place to try and filter out the nuts and make sure that the bureaucrats who now can't be replaced for political reasons are at least competent to do their damn job. And the degree to which that succeeded is a topic for another uh, day, but it's better than having Charles Guiteau's wandering around the place, certainly. And but it also provides. Uh, Roosevelt, his first leg up in a national politics, and it also gives him that first taste for rooting out corruption that would be sort of his famous signature issue, even though he began as a reforming politician. Becoming head of the Civil Service Commission is a great way to get a thorough grounding in the topic. And without a Civil Service Commission, there is no Teddy Roosevelt. And so, therefore, it's yet again uh, better to have no war with Britain and Teddy Roosevelt than uh, to have even two terms of the perfectly affable and competent, if not legendary, James Garfield as president. Right. And another uh, sort of collateral benefit of uh, the assassination, it is the first sort of cultural event that even though he fought for the the North and was a Northern uh, war hero, that sort of galvanized a sense of unity that the national mourning affected the uh, the South as well, and not just uh, and uh, white and black Southerners alike. He was a fervent abolitionist. Yes, and, that's uh, what he wanted to do in, in Kentucky was stop uh, fighting the Confederates so that he could go and free all the slaves. That was one of the reasons that he accepted uh, virtually the surrender of the entire Confederate forces in eastern Kentucky. He said, go back to your farms, don't bear arms, no no, jo- no, no blood, no foul. And, uh, be- and again, that sort of magnanimity prevented a great deal of, of uh, guerrilla warfare and everything else in eastern Kentucky. But it's because he saw the war as a crusade against slavery uh, before Lincoln did, in fact, uh, in many ways. Uh, so are there any other uh, uh, little uh, footnotes that you want to uh, include about the uh, story of uh, James Garfield before we uh, head on out? Or have you uh, dotted all your T's and crossed all your I's? I would say that if people want to um, uh, uh, sort of get a tangential glancing feel of what it felt like to hear about the president dying, you should go look up the uh, Johnny Cash recording of the song uh, James Garfield. Uh, which is about uh, the assassination of James Garfield and is based on, although I don't think it actually is an original, uh, one of the folk songs and um, uh, whatever is between folk songs and Tin Pan Alley songs, but one of the standards that swept the country in 1881 uh, while the president was dying and then dead. The, the, I think um, then they uh, just called them songs. They, they did just call them songs, but now we have to have special names for them to keep ethnomusicologists yeah. busy. Public but, domain songs, that's what we call yeah, them Public now. domain, the best kind of song. But if you go and you listen to that uh, Johnny Cash song, you'll get a sense. You'll be connected to the assassination, I think, in a way that is really difficult to be connected to um, uh, any pre-Kennedy assassination. Maybe, obviously, Lincoln, but uh, the, the the sort of the emotional... Uh, sense of of losing Garfield is not one that we walk around with. But if you listen to the Johnny Cash song, you can maybe walk around with it for three or four minutes, which is pretty good. Oh, and I guess very uh, another weird little footnote in this story is that <laughs> we are one of never the reasons, going to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get out of here. Uh, it just occurred to me the the other uh, thing about that that really tells you what the period is that uh, the reason that Garfield uh, wound up dying from his uh, wounds uh, those wounds would have been. Uh, non-fatal had he been treated in Europe at that time or by American doctors 20 years later because the theory of sepsis had not yet 
made its way across the Atlantic. American doctors had heard of it, but they thought it was dangerous nonsense. And not only did they reject it, but they rejected it vehemently. And so, uh, you know, essentially he died from uh, infection from all of the uh, things, un unsterilized things, including probes in their own fingers and things that were inserted uh, into him as they attempted to find uh, the bullet. And there's a uh, there's an Alexander Graham Bell angle to the story that we didn't get into at all. But uh, And if you would uh, like uh, even more vivid uh, detail of that era, uh, check out uh, Destiny of the Republic, A Tale of Madness, Medicine, and the Murder of a President by Candace Millard, uh, who I think likes uh, Garfield a little bit more than you do, Ken. Eh, well, you know, I'm not against him. I just think that, like Kennedy, he has uh, benefited in the historical memory from being assassinated uh, before he sort of got a chance to show that he was... Not all that. Well, if you're going to be assassinated, you might as well get something out of it. Absolutely. That's yeah. No. And, and he earned it, certainly, lying there eating oatmeal and being slowly starved to death and dying of, um, uh, of uh, basically botulism um, uh, for 80 days. That was not good. That's a less tasty note than the, than the Pad Thai. So let's think about Pad Thai as we conclude another episode. Stuff having once again been talked about is time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Earn yourself a lucky streak by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as... Samuel Kreider. Daniel Callahan. And Robert Dean. Watch out for our Patreon, whose ducks are rapidly coming into alignment. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.